It's good to be here. I've got new glasses on over here, and you all look great. All right. I used them for the first time at service, and midway through, they started to fog up, and I'm like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. Now what? Hey, last week, Tommy continued our sermon series, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, with his message, Honoring God with Unity. And today, I'm going to be sharing how God tells us, through Paul, the greatest is love. And we're going to be looking at chapters 13 and 14 of Paul's first letter to Corinthians. But before I start, I think you guys know that whenever Tommy and I are preparing uh, for a sermon, we do a lot of research. It usually takes a good part of the week, um, you know, probably 30 hours to do 30 minutes, you know. So it's, uh, so anyway, during my research this week on, on love, I came across this beautiful, heartwarming letter, this love letter that I wanted to read it to you before we start. And it, and it reads, Dearest Jimmy, no words could ever express the great unhappiness I've felt since breaking our engagement. Please say you'll take me back. No one could ever take your place in my heart. So please, Jimmy, forgive me. I love you. I love you. I love you. Yours forever, Marie. Then it says, P.S. Congratulations on winning the state lottery. But I regress. All right, that's cute. Now, I've got two questions that I want you to answer by a show of hands. The first, how many of you today are in love? Married people, you better raise your hands. All right. All right, second, how many of you are not in love today, but you've been in love sometime in your life? Married people, you better keep your hands down. Okay, we got a few. Let me get a few. Okay. Hey, when Tommy spoke last week, he left us with a cliffhanger. Chapter 12 discussed the various gifts of the Spirit given, by, given to the church, and Paul closed that chapter, this was verse 31 from last week, and it says, but strive, uh, but, I'm sorry, it says, <laughs> oh gosh, it's, it says, um, but I should be looking at this, but, but strive for the greater gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Once again, first, but strive for the greater gifts, and I will show you the more excellent way. That's the cliffhanger. Most Bible translations come close to the expression in which love is introduced as a still more excellent way. It certainly is that. The New English translation translates the phrase as beyond comparison. And that sounds better to me. Uh, The Greek phrase describes love as something that is beyond measuring, and that's the best. And in hearing that, it's important because measuring themselves, measuring their abilities and their status relative to one another, seems to become something of a passion and an obsession with the early Corinthian church. And Paul wants them to move past all of this. He says, love is the shape of life that has been set free from the competition. Friends, do you know that more songs have been written about love than any other topic in history? The same with poetry. But the very greatest description of love ever written is found in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. There's never been a song ever sung, no poem ever spoken, and no book ever written which so beautifully describes godly love than chapter 13. And this is perhaps the most widely recognized and quoted chapter anywhere in all of the Pauline letters, which poses for us both a challenge and an opportunity. Because the text is often used at weddings. 
And it's actually being used incorrectly because we understand as, you know, in our society as we praise the value of romantic and human love. And what's often missed and perhaps ignored is that this text was first written to a community that was having a really difficult time staying together. You know, a main reason that Paul wrote this letter to the early Christians in Corinth is because the church was a hot mess. They disagreed theologically. They struggled in persistent sin. Lawsuits among themselves, they disagreed. There was sexual immorality in marriage. Uh, Corinth's Christians disagreed with how to deal with food that had been sacrificed to idols. I mean, the, the congregation was filled with all kinds of drama and sinful behavior that threatened to ruin the witness of the church of Christ. And this, this is the very context of what we must think about in the love passage. It's meant to be a clever correction to the Corinthian church to stop them from misbehaving. And that they were actively pursuing some of the things that Paul mentions in the opening verses, such as speaking in tongues and knowing mysteries. There may be nothing wrong with such things, but if the process, people forget about loving their brothers and sisters, Paul's saying those things don't matter at all. You know, I, uh, this week as I was preparing, I read a great, what I thought is a great quote by the, the late Dr. Haddon Robinson. We're going to put this up on the screen. He writes, Love is that thing which if a church has it, it doesn't really need much else. And if it doesn't have it, whatever else it has doesn't really matter much. I mean, words, words of wisdom. I thank God. I thank God I feel blessed to be part of this church because there, there might be many things that we have and probably some that we don't, but one thing we have is love for each other. And I think that's exactly what Paul is trying to get to in his letter. Before we dive right in, let's remind ourselves two things. First, the meaning of the word love. You know, while it has different meanings in our language, nowadays we mostly use it to define an emotion. Paul, however, was writing in Greek, and there are four different meanings for the word love, four different types. There's eros, philios, storge, and agape. And it's important to understand. There is eros, named after the Greek god of fertility, and it represented the idea of sexual passion and desire. It's from that word where we get our word erotic. And then there's philio, which is a brotherly love, most often shown through close friendships, and it's a love of generosity, um, where someone is willing to give of themselves or their resources to others. And that word philio is where we get our word philanthropy. Then there's storage. I hadn't heard of that one, actually. And that's an affectionate love. And it exists naturally between family members and friends, and it's a warm, unforced love amongst ourselves. But Paul's not talking about any of those three. He's talking about and speaking about agape love. And you may have heard of it, but agape doesn't describe an emotion at all. It's not based on affection or approval. It's totally unconditional. Because the lover chooses to give it. And the, be the beloved, you know, might not deserve it. Um, it's a decision of the will to act in another person's interest. Whether we feel like it or not, it's getting down from the supper table and washing the feet of others. It's being willing to lay down your wife, to save, lay down your life to save people that might not even like you. And that's the way God loves us. That's what Jesus did. 
And that's what God calls us. And in Paul's letter, he's telling us. He's telling us that there's a more excellent way. And he's not talking about storage or eros or filio. He's talking, and he's making it crystal clear. This is agape love. And we've got to remember who it was written to. You know, Tommy shared over the last several weeks that Corinth was a city in ancient Greece, famous throughout the world for sexual immorality. It was a place where the Greek um, just thrived on, on mystery, religions, and thoughts that they felt were popular. Um, and it was a spiritual experience for many of them. They had these powerful emotions, uh, out-of-body experience, so to speak. Um, and they'd carry out some strange actions that they believe were part of a, a cult. They followed different leaders politically. Um, there was much divisiveness. And Tommy's message last week about unity just was so beautiful because it calls us as a church what we're to do. And the church in Corinth needed it more than any church. You know, Paul had a suspicion that sometimes... These things like speaking in tongues and prophesying were, um, were not meant to, to help the church. They were more self-indulgent. And he had a suspicion that a lot of times they were using those gifts in the wrong manner. In chapter 12, Paul reminded the church was like, like a body, the body of Christ. That each organ and limb had been an essential part to play in the life of the body. And he said, so it was with the church that each of us has been given a spiritual gift, but if we're not using them in love, we're missing the whole point. And so we come to this incredible chapter, this chapter of love, as it's called. And there's three parts to it. First, in verses 1 to 3, Paul tells us that love is essential. It reads, If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all the mysteries and knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. So knowing what we do about the early church in Corinth, we can understand why uh, Paul was using these examples. There are things they valued most in their spiritual lives. Speaking in tongues and prophesying, understanding mysteries, having enough faith to do spectacular things, and they love the grand gesture of showing off. There's a story about young Francesco Bernardone, who later became St. Francis of Assisi. And it's said that as a young man, he had a powerful conversion experience. And his obedience to the gospel led him to start giving away his possessions. Except they weren't exactly his possessions, they were his father's. His dad was a very wealthy textile merchant. And when he saw what his son was doing, he dragged him before the bishop of Assisi in the town square and demanded that his son give him back his belongings. In response, Francis stripped himself naked in front of everyone in the town square, handed his clothes to his father and said, there you go, now you have everything that belongs to you. He then renounced worldly goods and family ties to embrace a life of poverty and generosity in total obedience to his calling from Jesus. 
Now you think about that story and you realize that the Corinthians would have loved this story. They loved the grand gesture. In verse 3 it says, if I give away all my possessions and if I hand over my body so that I could boast, they would boast. But Paul is reminding them of all of this. Using miraculous gifts, performing dramatics out of faith, giving things to, to charity. It's worth absolutely nothing if it's not, love out of, if it's not done out of love. So, as I said, Paul was telling us that love is essential, but now he's going to move on. And in verses 4 and 6, he tells that love is effective. And three, these three verses that I'm about to read, love is the subject, and it has 14 verbs in a row, in just three verses. It happens in every phrase. Paul describes to us what love is and what, what love does. And it reads... Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and it always preserves. I love that. As I was reading that passage over and over this week, it became clear to me that those positive statements in the passage could be and should be applied to God. And all the negative ones could be applied to us because God is patient. God is kind. God rejoices in truth. God bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. But us, we can be envious, boastful, we could be arrogant and rude. We can insist on our own way. We can be irritable and resentful. And we may even rejoice at times in wrongdoing. As I think about this passage, I realize that I've got a long way to go. I think we all do. But Paul tells us that those who love are patient with one another. And in modern English, patient can mean that we're not in a hurry. But it can also mean that we bear with, it, with one another's weaknesses and make allowances for one another. And I believe it's that second meaning that Paul's talking about here. Because those who love know themselves well, and they know we all grow slowly at times. We fail. We miss the mark at times. And God is so patient with us. I mean, we're all sinners. But those who are growing in love are learning to treat others in the same way to be patient with each other. Paul tells us that those who love are kind to each other. They treat each other gently and considerately. They do good things for one another, give freely to each other, and they treat each other with respect and acceptance. They always remember Jesus' golden rule that we see in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, which reads, So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Friends, those who love are not envious or boastful. They're not arrogant or rude. They don't envy boasting their own wealth, their own popularity, their own success. Deep down inside, folks that do that are insecure. They believe there's only so much love and success to go around. They realize that if I'm not careful, someone's to cheat me out of my fair share. That's how many people 
feel even today. But those who love are not in competition with each other. They rejoice in each other's blessings. They rejoice in each other's success. They don't envy it. They're not jealous about it. Those who love do not insist on their own way. They understand, as someone once said, everyone is an I. In other words, everyone that I meet in my life has their own life. They're not my supporting actors. They're the lead actors in their own play. And gradually, as we, load, as we grow together, we all learn that ourselves are all supporting actors in God's play. Because it's not about me. I don't always have to get what I want. It's about others. It's about being kind. It's about being loving. It's about being compassionate. It's about acceptance. Those who love are irritable. They're not irritable. They're not resentful. They're not easily upset or offended by others. In fact, they choose not to take offense. They don't hold grudges or hang on to things in the past. They're learning that if you do that, you bind yourself to your own hurt. They want to be free. So they're learning to let go of pride and anger and embrace forgiveness, embrace grace. Those who love bear all things. They believe all things. They hope all things. They endure all things. In other words, they don't give up on people. The love for one another is stubborn. It's what the Old Testament calls in Hebrew, hased, which is translated as steadfast love. The message version of the Bible says it this way. Love puts up with everything, trusts God always, always looks for the best, never looks back, but keeps going to the end. So friends, this is what Paul means by love. And of course, it's a tall order. I can see how many churches would rather have a big building and work on splendid services. I mean, it's so much easier to do that than truly love people as Paul describes it here. Not holding anything back, never giving up hope, remaining faithful to the end. That's what Paul's writing. And again, he told us first that love is essential in the life of the church. Second, he told us that love is effective. And he described what love is and what it does. But now, finally, he's going to tell us that love is essential. And the only thing that will last forever. And in verses 8 through 12, it reads, Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. And as for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesize only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became an adult, I put an end to the childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Now, as I mentioned before, you've undoubtedly heard this message read at weddings. But I have to tell you that recently I heard it at a funeral. And you know what? People that were there really enjoyed it. It made a lot of sense. You know, because Paul's asking the church, what's going to last? On the day when you're face-to-face looking at God, what's really going to be important? Will it be our reputation for wisdom and knowledge 
our experiences. No, in fact, on that day, we'll be brought face to face with the truth of how little we really knew. We might think we have a good understanding of God and the way God works in the world, but one day we're going to look back and say, how could I have been so blind? You know, it's often said that um, no one on their dying bed is going to say, you know, I wish I would have spent more time in the office. No, no one says that. Because on the day we see God face to face, it's going to be so clear in our minds that some of the things we thought were just child's play to us. So many people come to the end of their lives, regret all the time and energy they spent on things that mean absolutely nothing. Some people set great success in store, accumulating possessions and money, spend their lives trying to be uh, successful and popular. They want to make sure people have a good opinion of them, that love them. And their greatest desire, some people's greatest desire is to be well-liked. But in the end, Paul tells us none of that is going to last. It's all going to pass away. So what will last? Paul says only three things. Faith, hope, and love. And again, he says the greatest of all these are love. It says in the, the, uh, the message version, in, in uh, verses 12 to 13, it says, for, but for right now, until the completeness, we have three things to lead us toward the consummation. Trust steadily in God, hope unswervingly, love extravagantly, and the best of these, again, is love. So friends, let's never let ourselves settle for less than this. Let's never forget that the most important thing that we can do, that we can work on, is love. Because without it, everything else is just busy work. So we're going to move on to chapter 14, and here's the situation. The Corinth believers uh, love speaking in tongues. They measure their spirituality and their giftness according to their tongue-speaking ability. Paul says, first understand that whatever spiritual gifts you may have, they all come from God. We heard about this last week. Who desires to give us what he desires. Everyone has their spiritual gifts equally, and they all belong to Christ's body. God does not measure anything according to our, our gifts, but rather he measures them according to how we use those gifts. If we use them to be a blessing, friends, we're blessed so we could be a blessing to others. And if we remember that and we live that, then we're truly a blessing to God. What really matters, Paul says, is how our gifts are being used. And Paul gets straight to the point in the issue of tongues and he puts it in place. He compared speaking in tongues to tuneless flutes and harps and trumpets. He said that the message simply cannot be discerned if it's not, if it's not clear it doesn't mean anything. That we're called for our messages to uplift and spiritually feed the aptitude of believers. And in the worship service in Corinth, tongue speakers are strutting their stuff. So Paul implores them through contrasting prophecy with tongues. And he says the true measure of a gift is its ability to edify, which means to build up the entire church. And if we look at verses 1 to 3, Paul writes, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you might prophesy. For the one who speaks in tongues speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, 
the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and their consolation. So I want us to look at this verse and look at the three words given in verse 3. The first is upbuilding. This word is the heart of the chapter, and I would be willing to say it's the heart of the entire letter. Recall what's happening. Again, the church members are suing one another. Fractions are developing under the names of star church leaders. The well-to-do in society are shaming the lower caste, and so on. And Paul is saying, look, you need to be in the business of building up, not tearing down each other. And again, the King James Version calls this edification. And that's what Paul's intent is here. You know, the dictionary defines edify as to instruct, especially morally, morally or spiritually. It says it's to lift up, to uplift. And the word comes from the Latin word to build. I mean, you get the idea. The purpose of prophecy is to build up the church body. And then in that verse, the next two words are encouragement and consolation. You see, prophecy is not to be used by the speaker to harm or tear down or to show off. Instead, its fruit is a stronger church whose members are growing in faith. And not all of them are going to be comforting. Oftentimes, the message may be to expose sin. But even then, the result is to lead people to repentance so that they would return to fellowship with God and grow, for us to grow even stronger in our faith. You know, verses 4 and 5 read, and, and by the way, Paul's point here is clear as it contrasts tongues and prophecy. He says, those who speak in tongue build themselves, but those who speak in prophecy build up the church. He continues, now I want you to all speak in tongues, but even more to prophecy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, because unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. You know, speaking in tongues, um, you know, we think about it as these, these noises, these utterances that only some people can be understood. And that's, that's part of it. But if you look back to Pentecost Sunday in Acts, it talks about how um, the Holy Spirit filled everyone so they could speak in tongues. But then it also says right there that everyone that could listen was hearing what they were saying in their own language. So speaking in tongues, you know, there's really a dual meeting of it. And, it, and, and I'll continue talking about it in a second. But the context in the chapter is that um, when we gather for worship, the prophecy is to speak a message that everyone could hear. And it's greater than tongues because it edifies the church. And that's Paul's message. In verse 19, he underscores this, and this is beautiful. He says, in church, I would rather just speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So you might ask, you might say, Joe, what is the gift of prophecy? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, let me explain. The one who spoke the authoritative word of God directly. That's what it was. In the Old Testament, these were the people that would say, thus saith the Lord. And that was the job of the Old Testament prophets. But in the New Testament, the apostles took over that role. The gift of prophecy is the ability to receive a divinely inspired message and deliver it to others in the church. 
And the Holy Spirit gives the gift to some believers to make God's heart and God's will known to each of us and to edify, to build up the church. Those with this gift are told that they need to be humble and continually study Scripture in order to test those revelations before they speak them. And Paul speaks about this edification in verses 24 and 25, and he, which reads, But if all prophecy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. And the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. You know, someone new will visit the church or a worship service. And he or she will hear the message of different prophecies. Perhaps one speaker will give a message about certain sins that need to be examined, which so happen to hit home with them. Perhaps another will talk about the grace of the gospel. Whatever the case, the Holy Spirit convicts that person that hears it. And they say to themselves, how did they know what was in my heart? Those who worship God, who recognize that they need to be present among these people. Now, Paul concluded by echoing the need for orderly worship and exercising the gifts in spreading the gospel. In verse 26, he says, What should be done then, my friends, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation, but let all things be done for building up. And in verse 33, Paul writes, For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. You know, in this chapter, Paul is, uh, is just saying that you, we need to use spiritual gifts. And in the very last verse of this chapter, he writes, Everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. One of the ways we're to conduct our time and worship together is to recognize God's order of creation. Remember that God created things in a, in a specific order as a, as a way to just beauty to submission. Through Jesus' perfect submission to his Father, we're called to have perfect submission to Christ our Lord. So just in closing, throughout these two chapters, Paul, Paul speaks very forthrightly to the church about and explaining what he means is the word of God. And to ignore this teaching, to ignore what he's writing, is a result of ignoring the church, of ignoring God. Paul reaffirms the need for us eagerly to build up the church. And Paul's words is a calling to each of us. I just want to close with Dr. Robinson's quote one more time. Love is the thing which if a church has, it doesn't really need anything else. But if a church doesn't have it, whatever, it else, whatever else it has doesn't really mean a thing. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you're a loving and a gracious God. Thank you that you've offered us forgiveness and the gift of a new life in you. Thank you, Father, that your love is perfect and it never fails and that nothing can separate us from your love. Lord, because love is patient, Help us be slow to judge, but quick to listen, hesitant to criticize, but eager to encourage, remembering the endless patience you have with us. 
Lord, because love is kind, help our words be gentle and our actions thoughtful. Lord, because love doesn't envy or boast, help us have a heart that is humble and seeks the good in others. Because love is not rude or self-seeking, help us to speak words that are easy on the ear and easy on the heart. When we're tempted to get wrapped up in our little world, remind us there's a great big world full of needs and hurts. Because love does not delight in evil but rejoices in the truth, help us stand up for what's right and show us how we can make a difference. And finally, because love always perseveres, help our hearts continually beat with love for you and love for others. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father, for showing us what the world and what the word love really means. In Jesus' powerful and precious name I pray. Amen.